We are back with another episode of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And we are going to continue in our series on church planting movements, disciple making movements. We've been kind of calling it multiplying movements. Yeah, that's the umbrella term we're using because they're kind of all the same and they're kind of all different. Yeah. And so we're just going to treat this this broad term as as all-encompassing. Yeah. Well, let's start off with a story. We're going to tell you the story about Billy. Okay. Billy is a good Christian guy. He wants to be a missionary. As a member of his church, he begins to ask around, and he, he's, he's, he's trying to probe and find out about the church's mission strategy, and, and they, they hear that uh, it's causing churches to be multiplying rapidly. Disciples are just growing exponentially. It's exciting. It's very exciting. He finds a group that teaches this strategy, and he hears example after example of these incredible movements of God taking place in Iran, Indonesia, Tens China. Tens of thousands of people coming to faith. Yeah, it's incredible. Billy is excited, right? Because he genuinely wants to see people get saved. He's taught to view this missionary task through the lens of Matthew 24, 14. The missionary task is to bring back Christ, right? As soon as we get this done, Jesus is going to come back. And there's nothing that Billy wants more in the whole world than to see Jesus come back, right? Now, as for this church, Billy learns that the traditional or the Western model of the local church, it can't keep up with population growth. So what do we do? Well, missionaries have to abandon anything that doesn't seem to be working. And instead, they should try to proliferate these things called house churches. Billy is very excited about house churches. Speed is the core value that Billy kind of takes away from all this training, this new strategy. So lo and behold, God's very kind. Uh, Billy pursues this path, and one day he becomes a missionary. When he gets to the mission field, he finds missionaries already doing these things that he learned about in these classes before he went to the mission field. Wow. Well, what are they, what are they doing? How are they spending their time, their talent, their treasure? Well, number one, Billy's told that his primary job is to find a person of peace, right? This is somebody who, that, who, who God has prepared, right, who will act as a sort of spiritual gatekeeper, Uh, in the community for non-Christians. So Billy's told that this is the way to plant churches and make disciples. You got to go find a person of peace. And if you were to ever ask Billy, like, "Uh, where are you getting this from? He would probably just recite Luke 10, 5 as a proof text for this view. Okay. Billy is also encouraged to do things like practice prayer walking, to uh, do evangelism where you use quick visual depictions of the gospel instead of the traditional method of you know, speaking, verbal preaching, proclamation. verbal proclamation. Yeah. yeah. Then when he's found a, what's become known as a pop, a person of peace, uh, who's interested in the gospel, Billy begins to disciple that person, but discipleship, it's really all focused on obedience, right? It's, it's not so much about how your heart is changed, but it's about how your actions must change. He's taught to avoid teaching and instead he's told to facilitate self-discovery, right? Now, as soon as possible, Billy is told that he should be leaving this disciple who ostensibly has got other disciples now, right? Mm -hmm. Five people together in a room. Boom. We got it. We got a church. Now, Billy, what he needs to do is he needs to leave and he needs to find another person of peace. While the group of disciples he leaves behind might be considered a church, he also expects them to split off and also find their own person of peace and reproduce churches by doing things like starting discovery Bible studies. Okay. 
Now, this story about Billy, this is one way for us to help people understand what we mean, what we're talking about when we're talking about church planting movements. So basically, this illustration serves to generalize the kinds of things that you'll see in church planting movements, disciple making movements, house church movements. Yeah. Okay. So today's episode, we're going to do what we always do on the Defend and Confirm podcast. We're going to try to explore the history of church planting movements, multiplying movements. We're going to ask the question, how did we get here? How do we get from Matthew 28, 18 and Acts and, and that model of missions to to this. Yeah. And so take it away, Russell. So if you're at all familiar with these movements, you're going to know who David Garrison is. Sort of the godfather of church planting movements. That's right. And he uh, wrote for the IMB a pamphlet on this, and then he published a book uh, by that title. And this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And his actual original pamphlet was titled Something New Under the Sun. Oh, no. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) what you have there is, is this idea that we've discovered a new strategy uh, that will get missionaries out to all the nations, that this will accomplish the task. But we've we'll, we figured it out. We figured it out. Right. But what we want to show is that this is actually just a modern attempt to return to some older theological errors yeah. uh, that we can trace back through the centuries, uh, and that these are they're just couched in new language. They they have new sort of business administrative type. Uh, practices applied to them. But but this is stuff that the church has known about for 200 years. Yeah. The reason why we're exploring the history of the development of these ideas is because what we'll see is just like what we see with every kind of bad teaching is that there's a pattern. And when you can discern the pattern, you can probably do a better job of confronting it and maybe help to change it in the future. It's almost like there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good, Russell. That's really insightful. So, so we're going to, uh, we're going to treat this sort of like a family tree. You know, okay. We're not going to do the, the broadest, most in-depth historical analysis, but what I want to show is just a lineage yeah. from, from practitioner, uh, you know, movement guru to theologian, to preacher, to pastor, all the way back to where this stuff originated. Uh, well, yeah. Let's talk about where we think it originated. Um, the second great awakening. Yeah, but before we talk about the second Great Awakening... You got to talk about the first Great Awakening. Got to talk about the first one. So the first Great Awakening uh, was a time of incredible spiritual revival, primarily in England, uh, somewhat in the American colonies, happened between the 1730s and 1740s. Uh, You know, it it kind of extended in little fits and spurts to the late 1700s. Yeah. Uh, Before I explain more about that, what do we mean by revival? Yeah, that's what the rest of this episode is going to unpack, right? <laughs> Tell me but, what you think revival yeah, means. Uh, uh, an incredible movement of the Spirit of God wherein he blesses the ordinary means of grace like preaching, teaching, praying, singing uh, to lead large numbers of people to Christ. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and in revival, we're talking about people who uh, are nominally Christian, perhaps. Sure. Uh, they're being revived. Yeah. You know, there, there was some idea that there was a revival at mm-hmm. some point. And so yeah. maybe the gospel was lost or spiritually there's been a great deal of decline. Mm-hmm. And now there's this outpouring of the spirit of God and there's revival. Yeah, that's right. Um, now, you probably are already hearing some parallels there with movements, mm. which we defined in our last episode. So okay. this massive conversion, massive turning to Christ of a large group of people. Keep that in your mind okay. as we go through this okay. because you're going to see more and more parallels. Got it locked in. So before the First Great Awakening in England, spiritually things were pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, A lot of war, a lot of drunkenness, a lot of decline. 
Uh, but God used preachers within the Church of England, uh, within uh, churches, congregational churches, Presbyterian churches in, in the colonies, basically to rediscover the basic biblical doctrines of yeah. the gospel and just proclaim that in a way that woke people up. Yeah, They were convicted and they were converted. Uh, we're talking about people like George Whitfield, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Wesley and his brother, uh, Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. And these preachers basically just emphasized the importance of that public preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of free justification. Yeah. Uh, these basic Protestant and biblical ideas that had sort of been forgotten over a couple decades. Yeah. When you read Ian Murray, as he so meticulously gives accounts of, of people who were present during this time, the language is all wrapped up in sin and redemption and new birth. People are saying things like, we've never heard this before. Nobody has ever told us how sinful sin is and how lost we are. And now through the faithful preaching of God's word, we clearly perceive and and we, and we have come to Christ. Yeah. And this did lead to tens of thousands coming to Christ. Yeah. And what's important for us to, to grasp as we look back mm-hmm. is how did these preachers, these leaders in the revival, these men that God used, how did they understand what was happening around them? Well, they saw it as a miracle from God. Yeah. They saw from start to finish that revival wasn't something they did. There was no kickstart. That's right. Yeah. Now, they all well understood that they were means, their mm-hmm. preaching, their churches. These were the means that God used to accomplish revival. But they were very ordinary means. Yeah, they were very ordinary. And they also had no uh, pretension of of understanding why God had chosen them in that particular point in history to do this thing. Why us? Why now? Yeah. Why why not 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. Um, And so they understood the mystery of God's providence in his timing and in the way that he works. Um, Ian Murray summarizes this very well. He says, In speaking of the Spirit's work and revival, these evangelical leaders were not disparaging the reality of his normal and regular work in the church. They were simply affirming that there are times when the Spirit is given an exceptional measure and that such times may come suddenly, even when deadness is general in the church and indifference to biblical religion prevails in society. And then Jonathan Edwards, a quote from him, should really uh, reinforce what Murray says. He says, The work of God is carried on with greater speed and swiftness, and there are often instances of sudden conversions at such a time. So it was in the apostles' days when there was a time of the most extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit that ever was. So it is in some degree whenever there is an extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit of God, more or less so in proportion to the greatness of that effusion. Uh, Edwards, a little less clear than Murray. You want to break that down for us, what he's saying? Yeah, basically he's saying that the way the Lord works is the Lord's prerogative. That's right. And at times he's going to pour out his spirit and have great mercy on a society. At other times he may withhold. Yeah. Uh, and that is up to him. It's it is, mysterious. It is his mystery of his providence. It is his sovereign will. And in other words, this is a this is a miracle. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Jonathan Edwards actually references back to the first chapter of Acts and Pentecost, yeah. where you have the greatest outpouring of the spirit in recorded history. And he sees that as similar to what happened in his own day and still part of God's providence, not something that can be predicted or created or reverse engineered. Fascinating. So let's move on now to the second Great Awakening. The second. Russell, if you were to Google 
the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening, they would both, the results would be the same thing, right? Yeah, as far as Wikipedia is concerned, these are just Christian revivals. That's right. And to be fair, the second Great Awakening, it did seem to begin in that way. But <laughs> yeah, there, there was some there's some genuine fruit that we think came from the Second Great Awakening. But there's also some very important differences, particularly as time stretched on. You began yeah. to see some very fundamental changes to to even what the term revival was understood to mean. So uh, there's a good illustration for this. Diabetes. Yeah. Two types of diabetes. Type one diabetes, type two diabetes. They're both related to your blood sugar and your insulin and your pancreas. But the mechanism of the disease and and the way you get it yeah. and the way you treat it, dramatically different. There's, type one, you can't control it. You know, your body's just kind of rebelling against you. Type two, maybe stop eating so many ding-dongs. Right. So, so you have two diseases that share the same name and are actually very different when you pop the hood and look at what's causing them. We, we want to go for a walk to raise money for a cure for diabetes one. Yes. Type two, maybe you should go for a walk. That, that's right. Okay. So the same thing is going on with revival in the first and second great awakening. They're okay. Same word, very different understanding of what that mm. meant. Again, uh, particularly as this extends through time. So the second great awakening took place in the early 1800s and it was pretty much isolated to the United States. Uh, the leaders of this movement were were many. Various and sundry. But there's one guy in particular who really stands out as sort of the figurehead of this second great awakening. Dun, dun, dun. What was his name, Russell? Charles Finney. A lawyer by trade, you say? Yeah, he was a lawyer. Uh, he was a Presbyterian. Just want to throw that out there. Uh, and And what we find was that unlike preachers before him, and unlike what the Bible teaches... Finney believed that revivals were not miracles. Yeah, he says it like this. A revival is not a miracle. That's a direct quote. <laughs> direct quote. Nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. So what Finney is saying here is basically you can kind of reverse engineer a revival. You can look at it like a scientist yeah. and, and you can create a revival if you so desire. Yeah, he, he believed that revival was a natural reaction of human communities to the right set of circumstances and stimuli. Mm. And so if you get everything quite right, you know, if you get everything lined up and use the right methods, you can make revivals happen. Now, how, how do we go from John Wesley, George Whitfield? I mean, Calvinist, Arminian, we're going to talk about that later, but uh, still very much in the same boat. Jonathan Edwards, how do we go from that? Those guys who understood revival to be something that God does according to his sovereign mercy to, to Charles Finney. Uh, it's simple. Okay. You abandon what the Bible teaches about conversion. Okay. I mean, it really is that simple. Uh, okay, so Charles Finney dramatically departed from what Christians before him had, had taught for hundreds of years and what the Bible teaches in the idea that man's heart is sinful by nature. And so he didn't believe that. He rejected that. And because yeah. he rejected that, he believed that it was possible for anyone to repent and put their faith in Christ at any time. So he was basically a Pelagian. Yeah. Anywhere, anytime, you can be persuaded through rational arguments and emotional appeals to convert to Christianity. Mm. So conversion in Finney's mind 
is not a miraculous work of the Spirit of God changing someone's heart. Mm -hmm. It's literally just you get convinced to change your mind. Wow. Uh, Carl Dahlfred, did I say that right? You did. He summarizes Finney's view like this. Man was not so corrupt that he could not be induced to repent with the right amount of persuasion. And when salvation depends wholly upon being sufficiently persuaded to change one's mind, it is incumbent upon preachers to use all means necessary to get people to change their mind. So if all you need to do is persuade someone, then really nothing's off the table. Be persuasive. The ends justify the means. Whatever it takes. Ian Murray, again, Finney's error rested on the assumption that there was no problem in man deeper than the will. No mind or nature at enmity with God that must first be renewed before there can be any saving response to the gospel. By asserting that man's only problem was his will, Finney had put himself among the Pelagians. That's right. And we'll talk a bit about the the heresy of Pelagius in a minute here. But this is what's important. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. If if, people have been tuning out, lock back in. Here we go. Our beliefs about conversion will determine what we believe about revival. And you can just pause for a second there. Hey, why are we talking about revival? We'll take that word and substitute it with movements. Oh, I was wondering, like, are we going to get back to church planning movements? Yes. Yeah. So uh, in our next episode, we'll talk about how all of these ideas of Finney were basically applied to missiology. And Mm. the word revival became the word movement. The same concepts are at work here. Yeah. So what you believe about conversion will dramatically impact what you believe about revival, or in this case, what you believe about people movements, and what church you, planting movements. How to do missions. Exactly. Pause. Quick book plug. Hopefully this will be a link below our episode. Andy Davis, uh, his book on missions, and then Aaron Minikoff, his book on conversion. Just get both of those little tiny books. They're like 130 pages a piece. Get them both. Read them together. Get a couple people together. Read them. I think you'll find them helpful. Amen. Yeah. So Finney believed again that if you wanted revival, you could get one. Um, now let's go back to something you mentioned a second ago. Okay. There may be some of our listeners who are thinking, isn't this just the age old debate between Calvinists and Arminians? Yeah. And and just, that's not the purpose of this episode. And it's actually not a correct assessment of what's going on here, but can you give like a 10 second summary of what that debate is? Yeah. So you can see it pretty easily in the acronym for TULIP, right? Reform people or people who have a Calvinistic soteriology, we would say, Uh, Pauline and Jesus soteriology. They believe that human beings are totally depraved, that our being chosen by God is unconditional. There's nothing in us that causes him to choose us. We we believe that the atonement was particular, that is Jesus died specifically to save those whom God the Father had chosen in eternity's past. We believe in irresistible grace, which is, yeah, you can resist God until God says you can't, and then he will take you and make you his. And then perseverance of the saints, or uh, sometimes called preservation of the saints. Basically, God's all those who are saved uh, by Christ will make it to the end. And then, you know, uh, Arminians kind of look at each one of those points and would disagree. They would say, yes, we're depraved, but we're not totally and utterly depraved. And not even all Arminians would really say that. But we would. they might say that some of our election is conditional and so on and so forth. That's right. And that is not what is going on here. Yeah, this is not Calvinism versus Arminianism. And you don't have to go further than the first great awakening to see that to be the case. John Wesley, Arminian. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Calvinist. Uh, but both of them had the same understanding of what God was doing in that first great awakening. Yes. You don't have to agree uh, about with us about limited atonement right. to be opposed to what we're talking about here today. All of these men understood that apart from a special work of divine grace... 
nobody can choose Christ. That's right. Now they disagreed a little bit on the nature of that saving grace, which is which is the fundamental disagreement between Arminianism and Calvinism. But the result is that a salvation salvation is only by God. Yeah. It is first and foremost a work of God, not a work of man. Yeah. And that means that this puts Finney in a completely different category. He was a Pelagian. Yeah, basically. And Pelagianism denies uh, man's depravity, the, the natural state of man as a sinner, and in, unable to turn to Christ and obey God apart from uh, regeneration. And uh, that's heresy. It, it, I mean, it's been, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Protestants, we all agree. Uh, Pelagius came along was like, guys, listen, the fall was more like a stumble, Yeah, but like we're cool. We can yeah. still reach back out to God. No problem. That's right. Yeah. So this led to some, some practical changes in the way Finney and the people who followed him and thought like him actually conducted themselves in ministry. So his theology, his orthodoxy or heterodoxy affected his practice. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about those. Yeah. Number one. It led to a call for immediate response, and I'm assuming that's in the preaching and evangelism. Yeah, like right? you, you're hearing my voice, yeah. repent and believe now, now, today. Right now. Often secured through emotional manipulation, and there are a couple of different ways that that happened, right? We, you, yeah. You have the anxious bench, yep. right? Uh, sometimes in the back, sometimes in the front, where you bring sinners up and, yep. and y- you keep preaching at them until they finally break. Altar calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lot of what Finney called his new measures, because ah. these were things the church had not done prior Something to this period. new under the sun? Yeah, similar, mm, yeah. Okay. Uh, and let's contrast this to the to the preachers of the first Great Awakening. Okay, uh, they preached the gospel. They asked listeners to respond, uh, but they also understood that this is a monumental decision, mm-hmm. and it takes time wrestling with the Spirit of God, searching one's own heart, uh, and struggling with conviction of sin to to recognize the conversion has taken place. They also understood the danger of bringing people who weren't converted into the church, and so they would never want to rush someone to to be a part of the church if they weren't truly converted. Right. Which right. is again, if, if I want a response today, right now, immediately, uh, and I am pressuring people through emotional appeals and persuasion, there's a really high risk that a lot of people are going to walk that aisle and raise their hand and profess faith in Christ just because their friends are doing it or just to fit in or because they feel yeah. a worldly remorse in that moment. Do you think if fire truck baptisms were a thing in the days of Charles Finney that they would have done that? I, yeah, I think so. I, I agree. Okay. The, the second uh, way that this worked out practically was a conflation of external success. And we're going to use quotes around that success, large numbers of people claiming that something spiritual has happened. So a conflation of that with divine approval Let's just stop right there. So basically, the, if, if we see that a lar- large number of people are responding in a positive way to what we're saying and doing, then that means God has to be happy with what we're doing. Right. They're externally responding. So yeah. they've raised their hand. They've yeah. walked the aisle. They've prayed the prayer, you know, the sinner's prayer. They've, they've professed faith. Yeah. And what I imagine if we could jump in a time machine and go say, hey, Finney, uh, I don't think any of the methods you're using are biblical. Yeah. He'd say, well, look at my numbers. Yeah. Look at, argue with that. Argue with my success. Cause you can't argue with my numbers. Look at all the converts that I've 
led to Christ. And this connects to church planting movements how? Well, if you've ever talked to anyone who's involved in church planting movements, that's exactly the response you'll get if you critique these methods as unbiblical, is you can't argue with the numbers. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people who came to faith in, in, in this people group, tens of thousands over here in Iran, tens of thousands in Southeast Asia. You may not think it's biblical, but look at the numbers we're getting. That proves that it's working, and that proves that God is behind it. Pragmatism through and through. Now, in contrast to that, in the Great Awakening. Yeah, so the the pastors and preachers prior to this recognized wisely the danger of creating false or spurious conversions, of assuring people that they're saved where no real spiritual change has taken place, Yeah, uh, both for the sake of their own souls and also for the health of the church. You're yeah. bringing people into the church who are not truly regenerate, who have not actually had any spiritual change. Well, that's how you get nominalism. That's how you get hypocrisy in the church that ultimately leads to the gospel being lost for, for generations. Yeah. The third way that this Im- impacted the practical ministry of the Second Great Awakening it led to a de-emphasis on the local church. And oh man, you know, we're mad at this point, right? We're the, we're the local church guys. Triggered. Let, triggered. Let's talk about it. Finney did not believe, like many Southern Baptist pastors today, did not believe that the Bible prescribed anything very particular for the church other than the gospel message. Yeah. 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 You get a, a bare bones, watered down definition of a church. Uh, ignore the the prescriptive elements of what a church is, how it should be organized, how it should do business, how it should be led. Uh, and, and you end up with uh, this this attitude towards ministry that you just do whatever works. Yeah. You know, and, and that may be... Uh, different from place to place. In Finney's mind, that was, hey, if it's not producing a whole bunch of converts rapidly, it's not working, get rid of it. Mm. And that was, in essence, the local church for him. It wasn't working. Right. And so, go ahead. In contrast to that, in the first Great Awakening, uh, uh, the the leaders, the, the preachers, the theologians, they understood the church to be a divinely ordained institution through which the gospel must pass in order to reach the nations. Right. Both both in terms of uh, the means by which God seeks to convert the lost. Yeah. Also, there's just the source of Christian life from then on. Yeah. Uh, also, when people get saved, that which they need to be plugged back into for the sake of discipleship and growth. Right. And so in Finney's mind, the church isn't working and that's where you see the replacement of the local assembly with these revivalistic tent meetings. Yeah. Uh, and even today, you see a lot of churches, particularly Southern Baptist churches, that see their Sunday gatherings as evangelistic performances and events aimed at lost people. That all harkens back to Finney's teaching here. Same thing in the church planning movements. A, a church basically just exists. To multiply. To multiply, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. It doesn't exist to raise the sheep in health, right? It exists to just replicate them. Okay. So what were the results of these changes, both theologically and then practically, in the ministry of of pastors and preachers in the Second Great Awakening? What came of this? Uh, Just the onslaught, deeply rooted practice of pragmatism. So, Sean, what were the effects of these theological and practical ministry changes of the Second Great Awakening. What came from it? Yeah. Uh, Ian Murray gives three effects of revivalism, which is what we're talking about mm-hmm. here in his book, Revival and Revivalism. So I'll just give you one at a time and you just kind of riff on them. Okay? okay. The first effect is a spirit of error. 
Uh, yeah, well, we've already talked about the the significant theological errors that yeah. came from Finney. Uh, we haven't even talked about some of the other basic Christian doctrines that he rejected. Right. Uh, he, he was a heretic in more than one way. Right. But the most relevant for today is uh, he doesn't understand conversion, and yeah. he's passed that along to his followers. Yeah, that's right. All the way down to our day. Next, a spirit of schism or a spirit of, uh, where there's a lack of unity. Yeah. Uh, you'll often hear Roman Catholic apologists talk about how Protestants have, you know, 40,000 denominations. Look at all the disunity. Well, virtually all of those, with with the exception of a few, came from this period. Mm. Uh, you had all kinds of people arguing that we need to leave the denominations. We need to go out and start new churches that are faithful to the teachings that we're learning. If those guys could go put a tent in the field, we can do it too. That's right. And so you get all of these Pentecostal and charismatic and, and different streams of evangelicalism that, that didn't exist until then. Uh, and you also end up with something much darker. Mm. You end up with a lot of error and a lot of cults coming out of this movement. Like, it, a, like a surprisingly large amount concentrated in this one area. Yeah, so Charles Finney uh, was in upstate New York, okay. and most of his preaching and teaching revivalism happened in this particular area of New York that came to be called the Burnt Over District mm. because it was just so continually stirred up in this religious fervor. Yeah. And, and an amazing number of cults come from that precise area. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Mormons, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, the Millerites, uh, the Oneida cult. Uh, you even have um, Washington Gladden, who is the founder of really the modern progressive movement and the social gospel. It's just fascinating that they all came from the same area where Finney was actively preaching at the same time. Wow. And let that be a lesson to us if we go out and, you know, burn over yeah. the nations with bad evangelism as I well. I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah, I don't think so either. And there's a third one, a spirit of bad enthusiasm. Maybe we'll just leave that aside for now and let's just press on and keep going. Now let's pause. We, we kind of done it a little bit up to now, but let's pause and reflect. And let's actually compare what we've just talked about for the last 30 minutes yeah. to... Uh, CPM, DMM, to multiplying movements. Yes. Yeah, we are here to talk about multiplying movements. Let's get there. Yeah, so let's talk about it. So these guys would say, hey, we're not pursuing revival uh, or mass evangelism, but through these movements, what they're doing, if you look at it, their theological assumptions are very similar to those of Finney and his followers. Yeah. So number one, uh, Finney believed that the right methods would guarantee revival. And multiplying movements believe the same thing. Yeah, they, they believe that if we do missions this way, it will guarantee success, as if it were a science. That's right. Uh, Mission Frontiers coordinator Len Bartlotti says, the use of divinely inspired methods and means will lead to divinely ordained results. And there's a sense in which we could agree with that. Yeah. Well, he goes on in that same uh, quote to credit Finney and Finney's methods for really capturing this idea that you can make things happen if you follow the right process. So the sense in which he means that we cannot agree with. That's right. Okay. Uh, number two, like Finney, uh, multiplying movement practitioners embrace a pragmatism that values immediate external results above all else. So uh, here's two quotes from Charles Finney. Okay. It was left to the discretion of the church to determine from time to time what measures should be adopted and what forms pursued in giving the gospel its power. Now, Finney doesn't mean it's left to the discretion of the church to determine how the building should be shaped or where to gather or what uh, to set the thermostat to. Okay. Well, he's saying that the actual proclamation of the gospel 
the ministry of the word, missions, the way churches function, that none of that's prescribed. Ah. It's just up, up to us to figure out what's working and to use whatever measures necessary. Mm. Uh, Finney goes on, without new measures, it is impossible that the church should succeed in gaining the attention of the world to religion. The church cannot maintain, maintain her ground without sufficient novelty in measures. Now, keep, keep that language in mind, right? It's impossible. We can't succeed unless we do it this way. We're not going to maintain our ground. We need something new under the sun. Yeah. Now, listen to David Garrison, who credits Watson with formulating this question. He asks, what's it going to take? As in, what is it going to take to reach 90 million people in this generation? And the implication there is uh, you have to abandon the traditional models of ministry and evangelism. Just like Finney, he's yep. saying we have to think of something new or else we cannot win. Yeah, and, and it's whatever it takes, even if it's something that's never been done before. And in fact, the novelty of that is encouraged. Mm. Uh, Garrison also says, this is, this is just a really fascinating example of what we mean when we say pragmatism leads to bad stuff. Okay. So here Garrison is describing some examples of churches that have been planted through church planting movements. Okay. While central elements of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the five purposes, which is a way he characterizes churches, okay. are found in each of the churches, other elements have been contextualized. This is what we saw as the Cambodian church blended the seven deacons of Acts 6, 5 with the communist notion of a central committee to produce a pastoral leadership team called the Seven-Member Central Committee. Yikes. In the same manner, the Muslim background believers of Jadidistan met on Friday mornings seated in a circle under the leadership of a pastor who they called their imam. Wow. So here you see some of the incredible danger, and I think this is almost naive, uh, to look at the Bible and see nothing prescribed, yeah. And to think that we can just make a church look like whatever those cultures want it to look like. And assuming that those cultures are just neutral yeah. and that things like communism and uh, religiously laden terms like imam have no spiritual significance and that's fine. Right. You can just incorporate those into the church. That's, wow. that's the type of pragmatism that we're talking about. Wow. All right. The, the third comparison point here, like Finnet, sorry, uh, Finnet. I need an editor. Okay. Finney. <laughs> like Finney, MM practitioners, multiply movement practitioners, they treat all external results as spiritually genuine and show no awareness of the possibility of false conversion. So let's read Finney again. What is regeneration? Ugh, I'm kind of cringing. Almost don't want to read it. What is it but the beginning of obedience to God? Willing to obey Christ is to be a Christian. When an individual actually chooses to obey God, he is a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. We have problems with that. <laughs> Ian Murray says public resolutions could be treated as identical with the miraculous inward change of sudden, sudden conversion. So if it's happening on the outside, well, then it has to have happened on the inside. Yeah. Too. And here's where we see that your theology determines your understanding of, of ministry and of missions. David Garrison would not be happy about uh, us pushing for caution around these things. He wouldn't be happy with our pushback against Finney on that. And you can just kind of see that in this quote. In more traditional situations, churches are cautious about assimilating new believers until they have proven themselves. In most church planning movements, baptism is not delayed. So put the pieces together for us. Yeah, well, his, his point is there's no reason to delay baptism because if somebody makes some external profession of faith or action 
that is in response to the gospel, that should immediately be treated as identical with the miraculous inward change of conversion, exactly like Finney believed. Uh, these and Garrison actually goes on in this quote to say that these individuals are immediately taught to go plant new churches and and create new disciple groups. Mm. And in many cases, you have guys like David Watson who suggest they should be out evangelizing even before they have been uh, converted. Wow. So again, it's this assumption that outward acts of obedience necessarily mean real spiritual change has taken place. And that's something the Bible cautions against cautions against uh, throughout. Should we seal it with one more quote from Chris Galanos? Let's do it. DMM practitioners measure spiritual growth by gauging how much people are obeying Jesus, not how much they know about Jesus. That's, a, that's what we in the biz like to call a false dichotomy. It is. And we are going to obviously critique that aspect of multiplying movements. Mm -hmm. Um, But just for now, look at the similarity between the way Finney measures success and and tries to gauge whether someone's converted. As if, if you see obedience, it's there. It's the same way that these multiplying movement practitioners teach us to look for Christians. If, if they obey even in the slightest command, yeah. it's a sign that they're there. Just in case someone listens to this and doesn't listen to a future episode, can I just do a mini critique? <laughs> Go ahead. Just, in First John, you see the language of love and truth and obedience all bound up together. So none of these things should ever be separated from one another, and they are all mutually reinforcing. So to even say something like that is pretty troubling. That's right. Okay. Number four, like Finney, uh, multiplying movement practitioners de-emphasize the importance of the local church. And let's just let David Garrison speak for himself. Conventional wisdom holds that one should always work through the local church to reach a neighboring people group. In too many instances, the local church is a major stumbling block that is preventing the unreached from coming to Christ. Neil Cole says, church is not meant to be the agent of change. Jesus is. Alan Hurst says, we often hear that the church has a mission, but it is more correct to say that the mission has a church. Here again, you see that same contrast between first great awakening preachers, the church is the God-ordained means by which lost people are saved and then uh, bound up together to continue to grow in maturity and holiness on their road to heaven. And then the second great awakening who says, really nothing about the church is prescribed. We just need to get out there and get people saved. And once they've walked an aisle, our job is done and we move on to the next person. The Mm. church, if it's not working, needs to get out of the way. Yeah. Okay. So, Russell... We're not really pulling any punches here, right? So let me let me ask you this question. Are we saying that everyone who uses CPM or Four Fields or DMM or anything like that is like a fan of Charles Finney's theology? Are we saying that they're all full-blown Pelagians? No, we are not. Uh, I have brothers who have labored in the mission field for years who I know well and love dearly that have used these methods who are absolutely not Pelagians. Yeah. Uh, now, some of the people teaching this stuff may be Pelagian. Right. Uh, but just because you've used these methods or you've agreed with them or think they might work does not mean that you've adopted the theology of, of the people who originated these bad ideas. It's very easy to be influenced by bad ideas, to be downstream of bad ideas and not recognize it, not realize it, and not actually be... If somebody were to kind of lay it all out for you and be like, is this what you believe? Yeah. They'd probably be like, no, actually, no, I don't believe any of that. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're, we're challenging listeners who maybe are familiar with this stuff 
to do is look at the methods and look at the theology that informs and leads to those methods. And if you reject that theology, you should reject the method too. Yeah. It's that simple. That simple. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about how Finney's theology and this idea of revivalism basically got shifted to missions and how missions became about movements. Okay. Uh, the same theology, the same principles were applied in the mission field. And then we're going to lead up to how this became CPM, DMM, house church movements, so on and so forth. So we're doing two episodes on the history of this stuff. We're, we're giving the people what they want. We know that people love history That's right. more than anything. Hey, think of it this way. We're saving you from reading a whole lot of books we had to read. Yes, we are. Uh, I think that's all we have for today. Is that right? That's right. Hey, uh, be sure to follow us on social media. We've uh, are we really doing this? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Gab, Hot Rocks, YouTube, bo- Box Rocks. What are the other things? Uh, we are, well, you know, we have like tens of listeners. Yeah. Eventually if we get enough followers. YouTube's going to ban us for something we say. Do we have our own Reddit sub forum? Not yet. Okay. Uh, but do follow us and, and subscribe, uh, interact, ask questions. We read all the comments on that stuff. So if you have a question, get on there and ask it. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for listening. Yeah. Signing off for Defend and Confirm. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. We love you. <laughs>